Well, please rise for the reading of God's holy word this evening. You can find it on page 472 of your pew Bible. We will be looking at Psalm 47. This is God's word. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations, God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Again, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Let's pray. Our God, we ask again, speak for your servants are listening. And we ask it in and through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. In the year 2009, in Liverpool, uh, specifically Liverpool Street Station, all of a sudden there was a song that bursted forth over the intercom. And if you've ever seen the video, what you notice is there's a song that comes over the inter- intercom, and, and really what begins is there's two people. They're singing this song. And their singing leads to a little bit more than just song. They begin to dance. And after a couple of seconds, there's a few more people that begin to sing. And a few more people begin to dance. And then all of a sudden, after maybe 45 seconds to a minute, you have something of 400 plus people singing this song and dancing. Now, if you thought that was crazy, it is relatively crazy. But what they call those, if you've never heard of them, are flash mobs. And that is simply a a sudden burst in which a a large group of people burst out in song and dancing. It normally starts with a couple, maybe one, and it grows and it grows and it grows. And then all of a sudden it finishes and they immediately disperse. Now, you've never heard of that. That's okay. But perhaps that image of something beginning small and growing, maybe you could say this evening you're looking at perhaps a heavenly flash mob. What is taking place in this psalm? As the psalmist begins, it seems to grow and grow and grow. And it's this understanding of what's the purpose of worship. It's all about worship. You're reading it and all you see are words of praise, of exaltation. And so I think to best understand it, there's three questions that are helpful for you and I to ask. The first is simply, who should worship? Who are called to worship? The second is, how should we worship? And then lastly, whom should we worship? Beginning in verse 1, who should we worship? It's an important question. And I want you to consider what he says in the first verse and all the way through. 
Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. And if I asked you the question, who should worship, I'm sure many of you would answer quite quickly. Everyone. And you would be correct. But I want you to slow yourself for a moment and consider the picture of what this psalm is actually saying. How is it aiding us in our understanding of worship? Yes, all people are to worship. But why? Because we have been called. We've been called to worship, and more than just being called, we are commanded. We're commanded by God himself. And as you read this psalm, it begins from one mouth, and it goes to another. Someone is first saying this very word to the people. Clap your hands, all peoples. Now, whether that is to be stated as one talking to a few or perhaps those who came to church, or perhaps those of all the nation, what you're getting in Psalm 47 is it begins with one group, and yet prophetically as the psalm ends, it extends to all the world. Everyone, everywhere are called to worship. And we need to be clear on that, because that is the call and command of God. We are to worship everybody all the time. It's not simply a command for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. The call of worship is to all mankind, no matter what you think about God. Because you recognize Paul is incredibly clear with that expectation, isn't he? The issue isn't worship. It's the object of worship. Isn't that what he suggests to you in Romans chapter 1? That we have been called to worship, all people. The problem is there are many amongst us who fail to worship the right one. They worship themselves, created things, rather than the creator who is to be forever praised. And so there's this reality that we are all called at all times to worship. I want that to sit with you for a moment because it should challenge you. Is that why you're here this evening? I trust many of you that is the answer because you get no extra brownie points for coming to Sunday evening. But isn't that the call of God on your life each and every day? That you and I are to have a conviction and a life that is faithfully and fruitfully worshiping Him. And yet all the more intensely, one out of seven, to do so together. And so why are you here? What are you doing? Have you come to worship God? Or does it check a box for you? Or does it make something easier for you? Or is it because you've seen Jesus and you cannot help but be with his people and in his presence and sing his praises. God has called all people, all places, to worship. And maybe that missional remark by one pastor is starting to ring in your mind a little bit. You've perhaps have heard it before. Evangelism exists not because people are going to hell. That is true, especially for all who are not united to Christ. But evangelism exists. Why? Why? Because worship 
doesn't. Evangelism exists because worship doesn't. And the gospel answers that question. You and I have every reason to share it with people because what is most important in their life is the worship of God. It is the greatest measure of joy that you can have. It is the pinnacle of your life, the purpose of your life, and even what you might call a successful life. When you are in the presence of God, singing his praises, you are fulfilling every bit by which he has made you to do. And he has done that for all people at all times and all places. You and I are made to worship. Who should worship? It's all people. Now, some would argue the context of this psalm, they put it in the time period of the conquest. If that's a term that you're unfamiliar with, that would put you in the book of Joshua. Others would try to argue that this is a psalm focused on the fact that there is a coronation of a new king. We don't actually know. But what is unmistakable is there has been some form of great triumph that has brought the people of God together, and they are, in fact, worshiping. They cannot help but worship. And so the question is, does Psalm 47 still apply in May of 2022? And of course, the answer is yes. What Psalm 47 said when it was written is still to be true today. We are to be known of, as a people who worship. This victory that took place, whatever it might have been in Psalm 47, is not merely to point to a circumstance. It's meant to point to an eternal king. One who, in fact, as we heard in our call to worship, is over all the earth. All people are to worship because the foundation of this psalm is that there is a king who rules and reigns at all times and for all purposes and all people. He is a sovereign king. And therefore, you read Psalm 47 And do not consider it to be an exaggeration. When the psalmist is saying, sing praises, sing praises, sing praises, don't stop reading because you think the refrain is boring or it's old. They're not exaggerating. They're saying when you recognize the king, all people will, in fact, worship. And because what's behind this psalm is to say, we know that there is one true king. Kings and kingdoms in our world fall, but not the one eternal king. James Montgomery Boyce, I think, is helpful. He provides a historical illustration here. He's quoting from a British historian by the name of Arnold Toynbee. It was in 1934 when Arnold began a study of world history that occupied him until 1961. And this is what he discovers. He eventually fills this volume. It's actually 12 volumes. It's a massive work. And he's talking about distinct civilizations. And according to Arnold, he says that there are 34 distinct civilizations, including 13 independent, 15 satellite, and 6 abortive. He goes on to say, each of these came upon the pages of history for a time and then passed away. Egypt was one, a great world power, but it is weak today. Babylon was mighty, but its territory has been divided. 
And even the discovery of great stores of oil in that areas of the world has not restored it or the surrounding nations of a dominant position on the world stage. Greece and Rome, once wonders of mankind, have fallen. The Soviet Union fell apart. And don't you appreciate, he continues, even the United States of America is in decline and will not escape the inexorable law of history. Namely, and he quotes from Proverbs chapter 14, that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. What is the point of what Boyce is saying? He's trying to illustrate what this psalm is saying. It has an assumption. Kings and kingdoms fall, but not the one true king. He's always, in fact, enthroned, never stressed nor surprised. And so what the reason by which we can say all people are, in fact, called to worship, because if there is a one true eternal king, all people have been called to obedience. And therefore, your greatest act of obedience is to worship. All people are to worship. But how? If all people are to worship, how should we worship? Now, I recognize that is a simple question, but one with great controversy. How should we worship God? Many people have many different answers. And perhaps the reason it is so controversial is because naturally we look inward rather than upward. We want to know what satisfies my desires. How do I think? How do I feel? What do I want in worship? Rather than thinking about the one by which we came to worship. We think about the worship experience. Those are terms now linked together. We become consumers. And if we are now consumers of worship, we can use the real estate uh, statement. The customer, what? Is always right. Now, that's not a far-fetched idea, is it? Because you know the world in which we live. I think this was probably three or four years ago. My wife and I were having a discussion, and I don't know if she was the one in line or she got this information from a friend, but she was telling me how long it took her to get a cup of coffee because someone had some complicated order. And she read it off to me, and I didn't know what it meant. And so I thought, you know, I should use that as an illustration tonight. So I looked something up. How complicated could you make an order? My goodness, If you have not been to Starbucks lately, you can make it extremely complicated. There's a man in LA. His name is Edward. The last name is skipping my mind here. And what he ordered, the name of the drink, a caramel crunch frappuccino, which I thought that seems relatively simple until he decided to make a few substitutions. He needed five bananas, extra caramel drizzle, extra whip, He needed extra cinnamon dolce on top, seven pumps of caramel syrup, one of honey, and five other ingredients. He needed a different size cup than the one he ordered. It was a $14 drink for five minutes of his life. You know how funny that might be, and yet, isn't that the world we live in? You can make coffee $14 worth in ingredients. You can substitute almost any kind of food item. You might go home tonight and turn on the television, and depending on what your cable package is, you have hundreds of stations. Our world is always telling us, it's all about you. 
the customer is always right. Those options present themselves, don't they, in a worship service, such that we now begin to say, which one makes me feel good? Which one has the ingredients that I want? Short, long, large, small, exciting, robed, whatever that ingredient might be. We've come to a place now where we are so concerned about the elements of worship, we fail to remember the one we came to worship. How should we worship? It's a controversial question because we focus on us and rather focusing on God. But what does the psalmist say? He gives us a few principles, doesn't he? He says, clap your hands, shout, and sing. Now, some of you might have just gotten uncomfortable because we don't do several of those things. I'm not suggesting that the psalmist is providing for you your Sunday liturgy. But what is it that they're saying? The the Hebrew behind that clap, shout, and sing is that of a battle cry. Something has just happened. Something incredible has just been won and you are overwhelmed and you are overcome with excitement that your body, as my one child will tell his teacher, I can't help but move. This is what the psalmist is saying. Something has happened in this worship that cannot stop me from moving, from praising, and from worshiping. Maybe you remember the 2008 Olympics, that is the Summer Olympics that took place in Beijing. There was that one race, it was a four by 100. It was a swimmer, Michael Phelps, perhaps you remember something of him. That's the Olympics by which he set the record for the most gold medals ever, but then also in one Olympics. But that race was incredible if you remember it. It's a relay, so there's four of them. Phelps, well, he dives in first, which is not normal for him. And at one point, it's the gold medal relay. At this point, you look out, and if you remember the Olympics, they tend to put these little lines in the pool so you can see where they are. And the green one is always what? The world record. At one point, five different countries were in front of the world record. And here they are. They're going. Phelps finishes. The next man jumps in the pool. The United States was not expected to win. And so he starts to fall behind. The third guy jumps in. We're getting a little bit more behind. And then if you remember it quite well, Jason Lezak jumps in and at some form of superhuman strength comes and he defeats this, uh, I think it was the Australians actually, if I remember it correctly. He defeats them. Now, why do you need to know that? Can I tell you a little bit about myself? I was getting extremely excited about this race. I was watching and I thought, man, this is a world record. This is going to be crazy. And so I I saw the first leg and I thought, oh man, this is entertaining. By the time Jason jumped in, you saw Danny rise to his feet and begin to shout. It did not matter that it was at 1130 at night. It did not matter that I found my feet on top of a couch, not even my own. It was my in-laws by which they were not my in-laws and I had not asked permission. I was overcome with utter excitement. And this is just a man in a pool. What's the psalmist saying? 
If you can be overwhelmed by just simple victories in this life, how much more should your worship engage every bit of you by which you are looking at the almighty God from age to age who will never fail to rule and reign, who has in fact redeemed you and brought you in to his family? How can you not worship him? It's incredible. And it's why you should regularly read verse 6 because it stimulates you. You just have to slow down and think about it. What is he saying? Sing praises to God. That's straightforward. But then he says what? Sing praises. And then what? Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. That's four times. You don't like it when people repeat themselves four times. But what is he saying? Don't let the music stop. Get involved here. There's so much to praise him on. Don't merely be satisfied by one little statement. Sing praises and keep going. Do not let the music stop. Now you Presbyterians need to hear this. Your tone is not what is most important. Why do I know that? Because some of you are here after hearing my voice on the speakers during songs. And you still come back to worship knowing how I sing. If tone were important, God would make vocal part of sanctification. And I am not anywhere close to that. He's not requiring the greatest sound out of your mouth. He's requiring the greatest sound out of your heart. He wants every bit of you. Now, he's not just saying, well, don't care. I actually do try to sing well. It just doesn't work. Don't sing without any care. Try. Work at it. Spurgeon has a helpful quote. Even under the economy of types and ceremonies, he's talking about a worship service here. It is clear that the Lord had regard to the spirituality of worship and would be praised thoughtfully, intelligently, and with deep appreciation of the reason for song. It is to be feared from the slovenly way in which some make a noise in singing that they fancy any sound will do. Do you hear what he's saying? Praise God passionately, but do so purposefully. You have every good reason to sing your heart out, as it were, because you have a purpose by which you are to sing. You sing intelligently, but it doesn't mean you do not sing with great affection. How do you do that? How do you become so overwhelmed that you sing with affection? It's by understanding the purpose. You want to sing with passion. You have to sing purposefully. You want to sing praises to God. You, you do so with an understanding of truth. It is truth that gives birth to joy. Don't you realize that? I'm sure that's happened to you. When you recognize the great work of God in your life, tears at times will fall down and they're not always sad. Sometimes they're overjoyed. You love that on the face of a groom. You're never thinking, man, he feels terrible. He's overwhelmed with what is coming his way. 
Are you overwhelmed when you enter the sanctuary of God, knowing he is before you and he wants every bit of you? Let the truth of God allow you to sing joyously. Be clarified in the fact that you are a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure, except he saved you by his mercy through the work of his son. You should sing with that mindset every single time that he wants to hear your voice. Understanding the mercy of God does not by any means lower his glory. It in fact only heightens it in your life and in mine. We want to be intelligent worshipers. We want to be intelligent theologians, as it were, allowing truth to tell us how to praise. We worship with an understanding of God, a full understanding of God, because truth dictates and drives worship, not music, not instruments. It's truth. But as an aside, your music and your instruments ought to praise him by which in the manner they play. When you're playing an instrument softly, you don't know who you're playing for. When you're singing softly, you don't know who you're singing to. When you're singing with a somber face, you have failed to realize where you've come. Jam on those keys if that's what you gotta do. Be proud because of who God is and praise him in a very similar fashion because the challenging question is this. If you're not praising him that way, is it because you lack truth and you don't know him that way? You see, if you know God, I don't know how you don't sing differently. If you really know him, how would you not sing with a very different voice, a different heart? Do we not sing with passion because we failed to understand what is really true? It's one of the reasons why, you might not like this, but it's one of the reasons why we sing hymns, traditional hymns, because they're rooted in truth. I'm not telling you not to go listen to the Christian radio station. You can, but I think if you'll give it a listen, at times you're gonna find out these songs are based on surfacey experiences. And you're looking for where's the truth in it? Because truth drives worship. That's why we sing hymns. This psalmist is saying over and over, God is in control. He has subdued the nations. He has subdued all the peoples. He rules and reigns over all the earth. And in fact, it goes as far as to say he is seated on his holy throne. It's a psalm of sovereignty. God has not relinquished any power or ability. He has it all. It's his. And yet we should have some understanding of that term. We like to talk about the sovereignty of God, and we should, but it ought to stretch our thinking because we ought to come to a place and go, we don't fully understand the sovereignty of God. It's further than we can imagine because he really is in control of all things. Have you considered what that means? How it plays itself out? There are aspects of the sovereignty of God that are beyond our searchability. We cannot fully grasp it. It's why we fixate our eyes on him so that we see him most clearly because he's seated on his throne. Because when the waters are raging in your life, 
Do you know where God is? He's on his throne. And when things are calm, he's on his throne. No matter the chaos, confusion, or success, it doesn't matter. He's on his throne. Again, Spurgeon says, unmoved, he occupies an undisputed throne whose decrees, acts, and commands are holiness itself. What other throne is like this? Never was it stained with injustice or defiled with sin. Neither is he who sits upon it dismayed or in a dilemma. He sits in serenity for he knows his own power and he sees that his purposes will not miscarry. Here is reason enough for holy song. Your God is on his throne, never worried or concerned. He sits in serenity, he says. Imagine that when you look at your life and you, can't quit, you don't know what's happening, you don't understand most things, and yet God is peacefully seated on his throne. You know, it's so convicting. That was a hard quote for me to digest even in my office before I came out because what I was trying to think about is if I believe that, if I live that way, that, that would change things. You know what it would change? I think it would change my parenting. Consider parenting for a moment. You know, when your children talk back, at least for me, some of the internal thoughts, sometimes they're external. Do you know who you're talking to? Do you know who I am? What did you say? What am I suggesting? There's authority here. I'm not saying that there's not a measure of it. By which my authority reigns. And often what comes next is anger. And then I want you to do what I want you to do when I want you to do it. And it works normally, but just for a moment. Because as soon as I'm gone, they go back to doing whatever crazy thing they were doing. And I was trying to think, why is that? Because the authority and the anger of God doesn't motivate you to live in light of truth. Truth does. When you understand truth, it will bring praises. You're not praising God because you're afraid of the anger of God. You're praising him because he's loved you with an everlasting love. Because he has provided you truth that outlines your entire life. There's reason for a holy song. If you know God, you cannot and you will not be able to fail in worshiping him. Who should worship? Everyone. How should we worship? Passionately, purposefully. But whom should we worship? We've answered it several times. You've heard me say the name of God over and over, but I want you to consider how the psalmist is answering that question. Whom should we worship? What, in fact, holds Psalm 47 together? Who does the psalmist say that we need in worship? Yes, he is saying it is God. He begins with we are called to worship. He finishes with the people uh, actually worshiping God. But what's holding it together? Did you find that one statement, that one verse a little strange? Look again in verse five. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. How or whom should we worship? Our worship should be Christ-centered. Is verse 5 not a great picture of Jesus? 
Is the psalmist not telling you that your eyes should be looking upon the Lord Jesus when you enter into worship? And why would I say that? Because Paul's going to pick up some similar language in his epistle. In the book of Ephesians, what is he going to say? In chapter 4, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Paul is speaking about our unity in Christ, but do you hear what he's saying? The fact that the church is singing praises to Christ. Why? Because the king left his throne. He descended. He came to earth. And then he ascended. And what is verse 5 saying to you? The Lord has gone up with a shout. The Lord Jesus Christ has descended from glory, coming down in the uh, form of a human, gave his life and rose from the dead, and he goes back into glory with the great praises of the angels. They're heralding the good news of the Son of God coming back. The saints are singing praises. And the psalm is saying, it will happen that way for the rest of eternity. Around the throne of God, we will forever and ever and ever praise him. There is the link Your worship is to be Christ-centered. He didn't just make you to worship. He enabled you to do so. You can actually rightfully worship because of Christ. And this psalmist is leaning on that covenant promise. That's why he finishes talking about the people of the God of Abraham. What is he pulling on? He's pulling on Genesis 12. The promise that God made to Abraham. Your offspring will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. As numerous as the stars in the sky. And what you get from Genesis 12 throughout Revelation is the, well, it's the spelling out of that very promise. It's coming to fruition. And Paul tries to help you understand in Galatians 3, what does that mean? When we're talking about offspring, when we're talking about seed, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. He is the seed. He is the offspring by which you and I are now enabled to worship. What a powerful picture that we can forever praise him. So you say, what does this psalm have to do with me? My life is difficult right now. Things at home aren't good. There's problems at work. My body is decaying. What's the answer? The answer is Psalm 47. Praise God. I understand how challenging that might be when you look at your life and you say, I can't. Look at how difficult things are. Psalm 47 is saying, if you're missing the opportunity to praise God, you haven't quite understood the big picture yet. Perhaps an example from an early church father. Think AD 95. Irenaeus, he's recounting a story that he received from Polycarp who received it from John. That is John the Apostle. What do you know about John the Apostle towards the end of his life? 
Domitian, he, he kicked him out. He exiled him to the island of Patmos. Now, it's not like what you and I are thinking, ooh, it'd be nice to go to an island. No, no, not Patmos. It's a volcanic island. It's not a big one. But there's nobody there. And there's John all by himself. What is he doing? He's writing the book of Revelation. And what do you read in Revelation? That there is a great king who is coming to defeat all of his enemies and to bring back his bride for all eternity that we might, in fact, praise him. John is in the worst of places and yet what he's giving his attention to are praises. That's what we need. He sees the big picture. Things might be difficult momentary, momentarily. It's all a part of God's plan. And don't just forget that. It's not a throwaway line. He's using it all. Give to him praise. Fixate our eyes on Jesus. You know what it'll do? It'll give you comfort. It'll give you confidence in any and all circumstances because he's seated on his throne. Well, let me pray to that end as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. Our God and our Father, we're thankful that we can come in this night no matter where we were when we came in. And yet we can hear the same truth. You're not only worthy of praise, you're seated on your throne. We have been called to praise you. You give to us every reason to praise you. And we can look to Jesus that it might affect and infect our praises. And so help us this night, no matter what's going on in our life, might we offer to you a holy song of worship that is passionate and purposeful because we have been redeemed and you are ruling and reigning in our life and over all things and for all eternity. We ask in and through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.